In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as you just heard in our gospel reading, eight days later, Jesus appeared again. And from that, today being the eighth day of Easter, the octave of Easter, this Sunday is always Thomas Sunday. Uh, an opportunity to uh, each year revisit the theme of Thomas's doubt about the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. And so, again, we, we observe this liturgical year as a way to come back each year to some truth about Thomas and what we can learn from these readings. Uh, let me also say that you, if you had keen ears, you notice that the Old Testament lesson is actually from the Acts of the Apostles, which again is typical in Eastertide for the first lesson, the traditional Old Testament lesson to be from the Acts of the Apostles. And so we have this wonderful set of readings tonight that complement the gospel reading uh, from John about Thomas to have us focus on the nature of faith, and, and we will do that, but not directly, if you will, but somewhat indirectly, because I want to start with the Acts of the Apostles. There's something there that got, caught my attention this week in uh, chapter 5, the section that we read. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, so the, the disciples, the uh, uh, apostles are being brought before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, that is, the name of Jesus, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So what has happened in the Acts of the Apostles, and at least the ninth book, book of Common Prayer 1979 lectionary this week, had us reading the selections from the Pentecost sermon of Peter, because Peter walks through the, the events of the resurrection, and so it's an appropriate Easter week set of readings. Um, so we've had the preaching of the apostles and, the, and, and those who follow them, and, and so now they're being harangued by the council, by the high priest. Again, we charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what got my attention. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Right? So the high priest, this is your teaching, this, this idiosyncratic teaching in which you believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? that's your teaching. It's not the teaching or, or anything like that or our teaching, but it's your teaching. The high priest is trying to distance himself, I think, from what they are teaching. Well, what is it exactly that they're teaching? Well, we get that filled in for us beginning at verse 29. And it's four things. So if we want to know, what is this teaching that the early apostles are, are running around doing? What is this? They're teaching in Jesus' name, but they're filling Jerusalem with their teaching to bring the blood upon them. And here's their teaching, right? That is, first, that God raised Jesus from the dead. So the first bit of their teaching, your teaching, is that Jesus was raised from the dead, but by God, by Yahweh, that Jesus was not stolen, that Jesus was not moved by the disciples to look like he had been raised, but in fact, God, Yahweh, had in fact raised Jesus. That's the first point of their teaching. The second point, and probably why they're being brought before the council, is the religious leaders killed him on the cross. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, Yahweh, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I imagine that will, in fact, get you brought before the high priest for questioning. When you, when you tell the people who killed Jesus that they were the ones that did it, you're going to get in trouble. The third point of their teaching, and God has exalted him as leader and savior. Again, this is verse 31, the first part. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Now, of course, in the Acts of the Apostles, the ascension has already happened, and so they know what happens 40 days later. We're, we're still anticipating that event, but the, what they're teaching is that God has exalted him as leader and savior. And I imagine both of those titles are problematic, of course, to the council and to the high priest, because they want to be the leaders. The high priest is he who leads on earth, right? So one is an earthly title, leader. Savior, I think, is the divine title. That is, he's the Messiah, the anointed one, right? So God raised Jesus from the dead. You killed him by hanging him on the tree, on the cross. Um, but he's resurrected. The implication again, resurrected. God exalted him to his right hand. Why? To grant repentance and forgiveness for sins. This is the bottom line of their teaching, that Jesus resurrected, and that grants us repentance, the ability to repent and be forgiven of our sins. Which, according to tonight's gospel reading from John, is then given to the disciples through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Again, John 20, verses 22 through 23, that Deacon Steve read for us. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus made it possible for people to repent and be forgiven of their sins. And then he gave his followers the right, the ability, the permission, the authority, the power to forgive sins by way of the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And of course, here in Acts 5, Pentecost has already happened, so they know that the Holy Spirit is going to come on the 50th day after the resurrection. Right? So this is their teaching, your teaching, right? And they're filling it with Jerusalem. They're filling Jerusalem with this teaching. So that is the core of their teaching. And so they're brought before the council, but for what purpose? Obviously, from the council's perspective, to make accusation against them, and hopefully, probably, to arrest them and to deal with them, perhaps in a similar way to the way in which Jesus was dealt with. But then, the last verse of our reading today also caught my attention, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, how do we know that this teaching that we're doing is true as well? We were witnesses of these things. Thomas, from our gospel reading, also is a witness to these things. So are all the disciples gathered there in the upper room when Jesus appears to them. But Thomas, in particular, the one who got to touch the resurrected Jesus in a special way, at least we assume maybe he was the only person that had ever put his hands inside the nail prints in the side of Jesus. Thomas and the disciples were a witness, and now Peter and the apostles again are reiterating, because this is a lot of overlap between the two groups, we are witnesses to these things. That's why we're teaching these things, because we saw them. We know that they are true. 
But then interestingly, again, there in verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and then this phrase, and so is the Holy Spirit. I thought to myself, that's interesting, like thinking of the Holy Spirit as a witness to these events, that God himself testifies to these events. He has witnessed them, not just the person of Jesus, obviously, who underwent the events themselves, but that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is also a witness to these events of Easter, to the resurrection, to the fact that it was the religious leaders who had killed Jesus on the cross, to the fact that God has exalted Jesus as leader and savior, and to the fact that all of this is done to be able to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins to those who ask for it. So again, like we have the human witnesses, Thomas and the disciples and Peter and the apostles. Again, lots of overlap there. Of course, we know they saw those things. That's what today is all about is how Thomas said, no, unless I see and touch him myself, I'm not going to believe it. And eight days later, he appears and Thomas gets to touch him and see him. And so he believes. But of course, blessed are those who believe without having that experience. The gospel ends. So they witness those things, and their testimony is good and sure for us. But yet the Holy Spirit is also a witness to these things. And that he testifies, he empowers Thomas and the disciples, Peter and the apostles, to be witnesses. That's what they're out and about doing in Jerusalem. They're not just stirring up discontent for the sake of it. They're not petulant teenagers. I was one of those once. Sometimes it was just fun to just create chaos. It's not what the disciples and the apostles are doing, right? You know what'll be fun? Let's run through Jerusalem claiming all these things are true just to see what people will do. It'll be great. It'll be fun. No, they're doing the exact opposite, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course, at the event of Pentecost. They are out filling Jerusalem with their teaching, which of course we would just think is the teaching, the truth about who Jesus Christ is. But then our New Testament lesson from Revelation also uses the phrase witness. And I think this is why the verses got paired together. These passages got paired together. John writing to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Jesus himself becomes a witness. The, the text tells us that Jesus himself is a faithful witness. And then it mentions the firstborn from the dead. So it, it seems to be tying directly together, right? His resurrection with his own witness to that event, that Jesus himself is a witness, right? So in this, in this interesting, weird way, Jesus is both the thing being witnessed and a witness to the thing being witnessed. So the followers are witnesses, the Holy Spirit's a witness, Jesus himself is a witness. And now we are, here we are 2,000 years later commemorating this, and I think it's only appropriate that we ask ourselves the question, are we witnesses of these events? Yes, I, I hope so. The scriptures testify to them. Our liturgy reenacts the events. That's what we did last week through the Tritium, the three holy days, is we reenacted these events. In one sense, we are 2,000 years removed, but at the same time, right there in the moment, witnessing the 
Jesus washing the disciples' feet, breaking bread and wine, having wine with them, being arrested, being crucified, and then ultimately resurrected. Are we witnesses? Yes, absolutely we are witnesses to these events. Both because the Holy Spirit, who himself is witness, is in us as well and testifies to these things, and because Jesus himself makes himself present to us in the bread and the wine and in our relationship with him. And so we witness with the Holy Spirit and Jesus and with Thomas and Peter and the other apostles and disciples to the truth of that teaching, so much so that their teaching becomes our teaching, that this gospel which fills up Jerusalem is the same gospel that we have today to fill up La Mirada, to fill up L.A. County, Orange County, California, the United States, the world. But it begs the question, we're witnesses of that sort, but are we witnesses of a different sort? It's becoming nearly impossible to read the news, and I don't necessarily mean the mainstream media because they try to avoid this, but it's almost impossible to read at least Christian news without seeing the rapidity with which human beings, Christians, are being killed, martyred because of their faith. Sri Lanka last week, ongoing in places in Africa, in the Middle East still. Then there's all kinds of martyrdoms that happen that don't make the news. I mean, people who are witnesses in the literal sense of the word, they're martyrs. They're dying for the faith. And so are, are we witnesses of this resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, so much so that, again, their teaching is our teaching. It's the gospel in four points. Right there in Acts chapter 5. But are we martyrs of the different sort because of our teaching? Do we teach? How do we teach? What do we teach? I mean, the great thing about Easter is, is we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes so much possible for us to be reconciled to him, that we can seek repentance and be given forgiveness of sins. And we celebrate that. And rightly so. But then what do we do here on the second Sunday of Easter? Or the octave of Easter? What, what about the third Sunday? What about the fourth? What about all the days in between those Sundays? How are we witnessing becoming martyrs to this teaching? How are we witnessing in such a way that we are filling up Jerusalem with our teaching? a question I cannot answer for you, can answer for myself, but I pose the question to you. How are you being a witness? Seems like if it's good enough for Thomas and Peter and the apostles and disciples, if it's good enough for the Holy Spirit and Jesus to be witnesses, how much more so for us? But again, it's, it's, a, it's a witness of a particular sort, that it's that self-sacrificial kind of witness that unapologetic witness that we are Christians. Something that's so out of fashion these days. And I realize, I think, I teach at a Christian university, but I'm fully aware of the ways in which being a Christian and being vocal about that in other contexts can cause problems. And in ways that we don't even know or understand. Christians lose their jobs these days Supposedly because simply being a Christian means to be hostile and racist and fill in the blank with whatever word is being used these days. 
But nonetheless, should that stop us? I mean, there's, there's Peter and the apostles drug in front of the council and from the high priest, questioned. How could we be any different? Again, for most of us, God will probably never ask us to die for the faith. I mean, that's the reality. No matter how bad things may get in the U.S., and I am not a prophet, so I have no idea what that'll look like, but I doubt if it'll come to a place where Christians are being martyred, killed for their faith. But it's always worth asking ourselves, if so, would I? Would anyone know anyway? So as we begin to enter into this season of Eastertide, as we keep having opportunity to reflect and think about the resurrection of Jesus, let us not separate the resurrection of Jesus from those who were witnesses to it, and that we also, by extension, are witnesses to it. But may we be challenged to think about what kind of witness? Witness from a distance? Witness from a place of safety? Or witness because I'm vocal about it? Because if Peter and the apostles are clear enough about how they express the gospel, that it could be laid out kind of in the four points of which they're accused, do I do something as obvious as that? So let us not make Easter just about the resurrection, but this year may we focus on Easter as God's challenge to us to be witnesses to him. Not just knowing the truth of the resurrection, but out there, speaking it forth, sharing it with others, testifying by our words and deeds that we are Christians. And again, I doubt if we'll die because of it. But even if we were called to that, even if that becomes a reality, may God empower us to be a witness, even to death if necessary. Because he who we witnessed to died for us. So how much less would we do for him? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.